0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Nikolai Bachman. Nikolai has been studying and teaching Sanskrit, Ayurveda, and yoga-related topics for 15 years. He's the author of the Sounds True book, The Language of Yoga, which is a guide to asana names. Asanas are the names of various yoga postures, and the book also includes Sanskrit terms and chants. He's also the author of a new home study course, the Yoga Sutras, an essential guide to the heart of yoga philosophy, which includes over seven hours of recorded audio material, plus a very fat workbook and even a card set on the Yoga Sutras. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, we're introduced to the Yoga Sutras, written over 2,000 years ago by Patanjali. Patanjali and brought into this new home study course by Nikolai Bachman. We also speak, most importantly, about the essence of yoga and how to incorporate the messages of the Yoga Sutras into our life. Here's my conversation with Nikolai Bachman. As we begin our conversation about the Yoga Sutras, Nikolai, I'm wondering if you would be willing to chant for us some kind of opening invocation that might be appropriate for a conversation about Patanjali and the Yoga Sutras. Yes, there's a
1: verse that works. Um, let me chant it.
2: Yogena chattas <laughs> padena vacham malam Vyacca Vaidyakena Yopakarottam Pravaram Muninam Patanjalim Pranjaliranatosmi Abahu Purushakaram Shankacakra-stidharinam Sahasra-shirasam Shvetam So that's a very
1: common verse. uh, I believe actually that's used in the Iyengar tradition. And the verses, the first part of that verse talks about the contributions that Patanjali made, uh, not only to yoga through the Yoga Sutras, but through a commentary on Ayurveda a commentary on the Sanskrit grammar. So he was known to be quite a scholar and a sage, contributing to um, three major fields of Indian thought. The second half of the verse talks about Tanjali kind of being deified as an incarnation of Vishnu. And uh, that verse is appropriate because it kind of elevates him on the, into a different, uh, different kind of person, I guess, a highly respected uh, scholar, sage, and it's talking mainly. To His head, could, you could take that as being that he's divine in his head, or also that he's uh, the serpent, the Vishnu's uh, thousand headed serpent. That's another way to take that.
0: So, Patanjali is a historical person. I mean, I know sometimes when we look back at texts that were written so long ago and, and with Patanjali and the Yoga Sutras we're back uh, to what date?
1: Somewhere between 500 and 200 B.C.
0: And, and do we know that this was a singular person who, who wrote these sutras? You know, sometimes there's questions or, or doubt that maybe it was a group of people or several different versions were created.
1: Well, there are slight variations in the text not big ones and uh... there is general agreement that it it, he was one person and he wrote the whole text there are some scholars that have some kind of uh... argument saying well let's see part of this text doesn't isn't his style and it it might not be written by one person but there, there are very few i think the general agreement is he definitely wrote the whole text it's very i think it's written actually in the same way throughout and uh he's basically he was a compiler of yoga a lot of people think he founded yoga but in fact yoga was much much older than Patanjali he just had this brilliant way of kind of uh, explaining what occurs in one's field of consciousness and what practices one can do to Uh, refine themselves ultimately to connect to their inner light of awareness
0: Mm -hmm. now now you say he was a compiler what what do you mean by that term
1: he took uh, the experience and the knowledge that he had learned and wrote it down that's different than creating something you know like creating the yoga
0: philosophy as a brand new philosophy he didn't do that it was already there Okay. And for people who are unfamiliar with the Yoga Sutras, can you give us the 411 here? Just orient us to what this text is.
1: The Yoga Sutras, actually titled Patanjali Yoga Darshanam, is one of the six main philosophies of India, and uh, you could make an argument that those six different philosophies are kind of different angles on the same basic core philosophy. So the sutras is...
0: So the yoga sutras themselves are a collection of 195 different seed statements. Is, is that correct?
1: That's
2: right.
0: So, so tell us a little bit what, what is meant by this idea of a seed statement and why 195 of them?
2: Um, 195, that's not any
1: particularly important number. It just happens that that's the number he needed to express what he needed to say. Um, a sutra is a particular kind of writing format in India and it's the format in which you express in the smallest possible space what you need to express. So there are a lot like mathematical formulas in the form of language. In other words, if let's say you had a book that was written like this, yoga is this and this and this by means of this this because of this this so it's just very very terse and concise which requires commentary (laughs) and so over the years many many different authors have written commentaries on the sutras so that you know people that don't have as much experience can really understand what was going on the other function of a sutra And the reason it's called the seed is when you're a student and learning this philosophy, usually you memorize the sutras first, the sound of the sutras, and then you start to learn what they mean. And so the sutra serves as a a mnemonic device to kind of cause you to remember all that stuff that you were taught by your teacher. And so it allows you to kind of have these tiny little statements. Some some aren't so tiny, actually, but most of them are small, um, that you can just kind of recite and then kind of uh, expound upon.
0: So let's just pretend I wanted to write a contemporary sutra about something, just for the fun of it. Mm -hmm. What would be the parameters... Meaning, for example, if I was to write a haiku, I would be told there's a certain number of syllables in each line, etc. What about when composing a sutra?
1: Well, the, the sutras actually are... There are certain parameters, and um, the, the main qualities of a sutra, and actually this is in the, in the book, are it has to be very brief, unambiguous... It has to be full of depth, which is why it's called a seed. It like has this, all this potential. It, it's supposed to be broad or multifaceted. It's supposed to be based on fact, not fiction, and have some integrity to it. So, for instance, in Vedic mathematics, there's, they have sutras, by the way, in every field of Indian thought. One example in Vedic mathematics, a sutra might say something like this, one more than the previous. And that's the whole sutra. (laughs) So you just have to kind of, with commentary, know how to apply that and what that means in Vedic mathematics.
0: So the yoga sutras were originally composed in Sanskrit, and the student learned the Sanskrit, memorized all 195 sutras before they knew the meaning, or as I'm memorizing it, I of course know the meaning because I speak Sanskrit. What was it like, back?
1: Well, in- I'm pretty sure what it was like was you, in fact, did memorize uh, at least many of the sutras. And of course, the you know the words, the vocabulary in the sutras, many much of it would have been familiar to the student already if they were speaking in their native tongue, which might not have been Sanskrit because the sutras are linked together, you know, there's the first one, the second one, the third one, and the fourth one, and they're all kind of dependent on each other in a way. So by memorizing the whole sequence, let's say all of chapter one, by having that completely integrated in your your memory, then the teacher can start talking about what they mean and he can start referring to the sutras and he doesn't have to worry about, you know, somebody... um, knowing what you know, what that sutra sounded like or the words in the sutra remember there were, wasn't really any paper uh, way way back then so uh, not a lot of um, writing was occurring most of the traditionally in India the learning is oral
0: and here I am a westerner interested in yoga philosophy maybe I'm a yoga practitioner and I don't know Sanskrit how am I going to get the genuine meaning from the sutras from the yoga sutras from this study and if I learn how to chant the sutras will that really help me if I have no understanding of Sanskrit?
1: Well first I always recommend looking at several different translations of the sutras because each interpreter will have their own uh, angle on the sutras. So, you know, if you have uh, a traditional Indian or a Swami translating the sutras, they'll interpret it in a certain way. If you have a Western academic professor translating, you might have a certain interpretation that's different. If you have, you know, a more new-age person working on the sutras, it might be different. Some people translate the sutras and they don't even know the Sanskrit. They're just relying on all the other translations. And then you'll get another angle on the sutras. So it's important to have some reliable um, translations. Now, as far as learning Sanskrit, you don't really have to learn Sanskrit to learn what yoga is. Uh, If you want to go really deeply into it and start kind of coming up with your own translations, then you need to know a little bit of Sanskrit. But it's not really necessary part of the reason I wrote the book the way I did was so people can focus on one concept which is pretty much always in this book one Sanskrit word, each concept is one word and just learn what that word means and then eventually you'll kind of accumulate a small number of uh, Sanskrit words in a little kind of yogic vocabulary and then when you can start to talk in terms of those Sanskrit words, then you can really have a legitimate and accurate discussion because you're using the actual Sanskrit terms in your conversation instead of the usually inaccurate English words that you can't really express some of these terms in one English word, you need a phrase or a paragraph or more. To, to do it. So, you know, to say, for instance, the chitta. that's one uh, example of the term. Some people just call that the mind. That's just, you know, it doesn't do it justice. There's so much more to it. Uh, many of the terms are like that. You need some explanation of what it is and even some experience as to what it is before you can really understand what that word is.
0: So how would you define the Sanskrit word chitta?
1: Well, the short phrase I use is the heart-mind field of consciousness. And that's just, you know, I needed, sometimes you need a little short phrase just to give somebody a sense. But there's a whole section in the book that talks about chitta, That's a very important concept because it's basically the mechanics of your psychology. What the citta is composed of and how they all kind of work together is very important to understand this different world view coming from India. It's a different view of how um, how one's consciousness works.
0: So if I'm understanding you correctly, part of your approach to helping contemporary people appreciate the meaning of the yoga sutras is that you've selected key sanskrit terms that you're going to help me the learner understand so they become part of my working vocabulary so then i can appreciate the subtleties and the nuances of the yoga sutras is is that correct
1: that's exactly correct
0: Okay, so besides citta, if you just, if I just said, okay, you know, I, I want to just know the most important Sanskrit terms from the sutras, what, what would be a few of the the ones that you think these are really mission-critical? If you don't get these, you're not going to understand the yoga sutras. You don't have a hope.
1: There are so many, um, but I can say one would be definitely the word that's typically translated as suffering. The word is dukkha. So understanding what suffering is and what the different kinds are is very important because so much of the practice, so many of the practices are there to reduce uh, the suffering.
0: So, so how do you define dukkha?
1: So dukkha, the, actually um, it's, I usually define it as suffering as opportunity. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, even though literally it means bad space. All that really means is there's something in your chitta, your your field of consciousness, that's causing you some discomfort, or some people use the word pain, but then there's an association with physical pain, and dukkha is by far most of the time more like mental emotional pain. And sometimes it's not even obvious. It's pain that's kind of there, and it comes up when certain situations arise. So, and I I like to go all the way to the word discomfort because that, to me, that almost makes it a lot more practical. Something that you're not comfortable with. Like, um, let's say you're in a conversation and somebody says something that really makes you feel uncomfortable according to the yoga philosophy that's something that you are supposed to look at in yourself as to why that made you feel uncomfortable because the idea is to try to be centered and try to be kind of almost transparent um, in in the world, still functioning and still having opinions and everything like that but as far as Uh, Interacting with the world and with yourself, the idea is to be most of the time kind of connected to this unchanging light of awareness within you and just kind of going through the motions of the world that you need to do because you have a body and you have a job and you have a family. But
0: asked you, you know, what would be the the key terms in Sanskrit that I would need to understand? And you said, well, you know, there's so many of them. How many do I need to understand in order to have enough of a working vocabulary to really appreciate the meaning of the Yoga Sutras?
1: You know, like the chitta, as I mentioned, the heart, mind, field of consciousness. I mentioned suffering, and then there's a, a, a word called abhyasa, which is, usually means practice. And then there's... Well, let's
0: pause on that. What is so, your definition of abhyasa?
1: My definition of abhyasa is uh, diligent, focused practice. And so abhyasa... in life so whatever you're doing you want to be practicing abhyasa and you kind of keep it whatever you like let's say you're washing the dishes even you want to focus on that and and do a good job and be thorough Um, now traditionally of course abhyasa means actually a meditation practice you you know taken to the core of it and so it's supposed to be practiced for a long time uninterrupted uh, in the service of truth etc etc and it has key ingredients to it. it like for instance a Vyasa by having a practice it will allow you to be more discerning in everyday life it will also which is the term viveka there's also uh it also leads to with this other term called vairagya, which is non-involvement with external objects. So it's by focusing, you're kind of less likely to attach to all these other external stimuli around you. So some of the terms kind of, you know, they kind of link together, and it's important to talk about a few of them and how they relate to each other. Of course, in the eight limbs of yoga, the the yamas, the first five yamas, the social ethics, a little bit, kind of close to some of the uh, Christian uh, ten commandments in a sense. But knowing those five is also very, very important in, in relationship to how you interact with the world. And it's the first of the eight limbs, so it's arguably the most important, and oftentimes it's not very emphasized in yogic circles. Mm
0: -hmm. Now, Nikolai, we know here in the West that so many people are interested in yoga. They consider themselves yoga practitioners, and that might mean, you know, going to a yoga class once, twice, or three times a week. And then, oh, you know, I'm interested in yoga philosophy, but the idea of actually going as deep as you're going in terms of understanding the difference between the heart-mind field of consciousness and just mind I mean, do I, do I really need this level of rigor to appreciate yoga philosophy in your view?
2: It depends how deep you want
1: to go uh, It's there in the book if you want to go deep and deep especially if you want to teach, I think it is important to understand it to that extent and um, as a student, just to understand what basically what yoga is, the most important thing, is to practice, learn some of the practices and practice these things, because that's, it's a completely experiential path, you know, as opposed to actually Western philosophy, because yoga isn't necessarily even a philosophy, it's kind of a both philosophy and ontology and psychology, it's kind of a blend. Because philosophy, in the Western sense, could just be reading all these books and just kind of talking about everything without actually practicing anything. And yoga is, includes practices. I think to gain a basic understanding of what yoga is, first knowing as, asana is a very very small piece. You really the, the, need to you, just, the
0: postures you're referring to. The,
1: the postures yeah the postures is a very small
0: piece like like what percentage when you say it's a small piece um What do the yoga sutras say about how a person becomes happier? Is there a specific sutra that addresses that?
2: Uh, There is one sutra that um,
1: in the term santosha, which means contentment and gratitude, there is one, there's a sutra there that says, you know, due to santosha, unexcelled, happiness is gained. And of course, in my opinion, happiness results from kind of the gradual purification of of the heart-mind field of consciousness, which comes from, for instance, truthfulness, nonviolence, caring for other people, not thinking you're better than other people, not thinking you're less than other people, and all the while always observing yourself and seeing, okay, what about me would I really like to change? What am I not very proud of? What situations arise where I get angry or I get afraid or I become something that I don't really, when I don't really like myself? And then what caused that? How can I work through that with these tools that Patanjali gives? And one of the set of three tools that is very important is actually the set called kriya yoga which um i'm not going to get into in detail but it's a very very powerful set of three tools that you can use to basically change your psychology kind of convert your own state of mind into a more uh
0: so there are 195 of these seed statements from Patanjali that make up the Yoga Sutras. Do you chant these on a regular basis? Yes, I do. And what do you find for you is the value in chanting all 195 seed statements? And, and how long does that take also? I'm curious. Um, you can
1: chant depending on how fast you go. I If I go fast, I can do the whole text in about 20 minutes. It's not a very long text, actually, believe it or not. I mean, 195 sutras. Think of 195 sentences. So it's not really that long. For me, kind of experiencing the sound of the original drives it into my bones. And for me, it might be a little different for me because I I can understand some of the words as I'm chanting them. So I can start to really kind of integrate the meaning while I'm chanting. But just as a practice of chanting, before you even know the meaning, it's just there's a certain rhythm to it, there's a certain enjoyment that comes out of experiencing that sound.
0: Okay, well before we go any further, we're not, we're not going to hear the full 195 sutras, but maybe just chant like the first three or four for us.
1: Yeah, sure. I could. I'm going to chat the first eleven. Okay. Because the first four would go really fast.
0: Okay, let's hear the first eleven.
1: All right. So this is chapter
2: one. Atta yoga nushasana Yogas chitta vritti nirodha Tada drashtu svarupe vasthanam Vritti vrittaya. Panchataya Krishta Krishta Ramana Viparia Vikalpa Nitras Britaya Pratyakshanumana Gamaha Ramanani Vipariao Mitya Gyanamatadrupa Pratishtam Shabdat Gyana Nupati Vastushunyo
0: Thank you. Sure. I, I have a question about the sound of the Sanskrit language. I've heard different people talk about it in these extremely reverential terms. You know, every syllable in Sanskrit, every, every word is, you know, the, the voice of creation itself, sort of the special language that just the, the sound of the, of the language itself transforms you. And I, I mean, I have to say it brings up a, a question in me of skepticism. I mean, how much is this just sort of something that's been fed generation upon generation? Or is it true?
1: Um, it's hard to know if it's true but it is true that Sanskrit you know has been considered a very very sacred language and it is if you understand the way the alphabet and and then the language is uh, created it's very conscious and very logical very scientific almost you know designed specifically for the human palate and also kind of designed kind of from nature so the, the sound of nature affected the way the alphabet was laid out and of course the alphabet contains all the basic sounds and then the words are just kind of combinations of those sounds so if you understand how Sanskrit works and how you know there's the, the, the alphabet and then there's tiny little single syllable roots that have certain meanings and then a whole bunch of words just sprout from that root. Nouns, verbs, adjectives, everything. are all related. So all those words, you know, many, many words can be all related based on the same root. Is every single utterance a sacred thing? I don't know, I think that might be taking it a little too far. I don't really necessarily agree with that. Traditionally, the syllables of the language you know, those are actually to be meditated upon in some way, especially in a mantra. So let's, let's take Om Namah Shivaya, for instance, which is, you know, uh, it's a Hindu mantra to Shiva. Each syllable, there are actually songs written, and one song in particular is, is in reverence to each individual syllable of that mantra. Whenever you hear anything related to the Indian thought, there's always several different perspectives. There's always the orthodox perspective, the, you know, and then there's the new age perspective and the academic perspective. Ultimately, it depends on your own experience. If you don't have experience that that's the case, then for you, it's probably not true. But if somebody who's really into, let's say, chanting the mantra, and they experience the, the sacredness of each of those syllables, then it will have a benefit for them, and it will be true for them.
0: Can you help me appreciate a little bit more, Nikolai, the Sanskrit alphabet? And, you know, you, you, you briefly touched on that that some of the alphabet has been created because of the influence of nature sounds, and I'm, I'm curious about that. Why you think the alphabet is so perfectly and naturally created?
1: chakras which number four in the root chakra and then six and then 10 and then 12 and then 16 as you go up the chakras, if you total up all the petals, you will have gone through the Sanskrit alphabet exactly once. And it starts the lower earth chakra, the first chakra, the most dense chakra, contain the petal sounds are at the bottom of the alphabet. And then you go kind of go up in groups, and it goes right up the alphabet until, in the throat chakra, you have all the vowels. And then you, the throat chakra is the space element. So the first five chakras represent the first five elements, and so that kind of, in a sense, represents the manifest world. So you've completed the Sanskrit alphabet once, once you've gone up through the fifth chakra. So that's another way of looking at uh, the alphabet in relationship to your own human body and the chakras. Now, as far as the individual sounds go, let's take a sound like ga, That ga sound, it naturally has an energetic of motion. And it even carries into our English language, going. In Sanskrit, the root gum means to go. You have a suffix called ga. So, you might have a, a word like bujaga. Buja means an arm. Ga means going. Bujaga, an arm that goes, a snake. And so, these meanings, and I'm just using ga as an example, they kind of add this natural energetic. The sound and the meaning are kind of directly connected.
0: Is that not true? in other languages? I mean, I'm starting to appreciate, as you're speaking, the special sacred nature of Sanskrit. What I'm curious about is, is it more sacred than any other language? Or is just language itself a sacred art form, because we're expressing energy in words? That's a good question.
2: I
1: mean, who's to say that? core original languages in the world, and there is an argument that says that it began with the Sanskrit as very and so many silent letters and it's not regular and it's not really focused on the sound. And, the, you know, when you learn the alphabet, at least the way I learned it, there wasn't really a whole lot behind it. It was just the, the sound of the letter and that was it. There wasn't any relationship with, you know, the human body or what that sound really means. Whereas in Sanskrit there is you know, that's been written about, and there's a, there is a, there is said to be a relationship there.
0: So thank you, Nikolai, for my appreciating the depth of Sanskrit 101. I'm grateful for that. To conclude, I just have a, a couple final questions for you. H- here's one. What is the hardest sutra for you to live by, and why?
1: Good question, Tammy. I would say, to pick a sutra, or can I pick a concept?
0: Concept's fine.
1: Okay. I would say the most difficult one is called Chitta prasadhana, the clarification of the heart-mind. It's also the most important one. (laughs) I mean, it could be considered the most important one. That's the core of the whole philosophy, clearing out and purifying the heart-mind. And so that's kind of an ongoing process and every moment
0: What do the yoga sutras teach in terms of how you should approach that clarification of the heart-mind? What do they recommend?
1: Ohm That's another method that's said to help with the clarification of the heart mind, or probably a mantra too. Anything to, that serves to focus your mind really contributes to the purification of the heart mind field of consciousness.
0: Mm-hmm. And then finally, Nikolai, tell us a little bit about the home study course that you've put together on the Yoga Sutras how you put it together the way that you did and why, and what you recommend for the person who wants to study and learn the Yoga Sutras and how this is a tool for that.
1: My approach to this text was different than uh, uh, other translations. So most of the books on the sutras are you know, translations that go one you know, start with chapter one and one, two, three, four, and just kind of go in a linear order right through the text. Of course, India is a very circular place, uh, Indian thoughts. It's, it doesn't always go in the one direction. And I found, through my teaching and through talking with people about yoga, that people were using these English words and I didn't even know what they meant when they said, for instance, mind, or they said Intellect, or they said truth. I wasn't exactly sure what they meant. The reason I chose this approach was to build up a vocabulary. these concepts would, will really allow someone to get what yoga really is at its core and hopefully to implement some of these practices into their lives and experience these things. And that's ultimately where things are really understood when they're, when they're put into, a, into practice and experienced.
0: Very good. I've been speaking with Nikolai Bachman, who has created a new home study course on the Yoga Sutras, an essential guide to the heart of yoga philosophy, a home study course that includes seven CDs, 51 cards and a big fat 336 page workbook, all helping the serious student of yoga understand 51 key Sanskrit concepts that underlie the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Nikolai, thank you so much for sharing a bit of your love of the Yoga Sutras with us. Thank you so much, Tommy. Thanks everyone for listening. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.